0: This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.
1: This is Jeremy Samick.
0: Hey, Jeremy, how are you? This is Jonathan.
1: I'm doing well. How are you doing, Jonathan?
0: Good, good. Make sure to keep listening after the program to find out how to receive a free MP3 download from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm your host, Jonathan Master. I am also the executive editor of PlaceFortruth.org, which is the host site for Theology on the Go. We're in the middle of a series on the issue of sexuality, specifically focusing on how we look at ourselves, uh, sexual identity questions, and how others have. Sought to redefine those questions. And we've talked about how this relates to education and the family. And today we're going to consider some of the legal issues related to the changing cultural consensus about sexual matters. My guest is Jeremy Samick. Jeremy is senior counsel with Pennsylvania Family Institute and the Independence Law Center in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania Family Institute is a nonprofit civil rights and religious liberty organization dedicated to protecting life at all stages, eliminating human trafficking, promoting marriage and family, and preserving religious liberty. Jeremy sums up his objective as a lawyer at the Pennsylvania Family Institute in a really simple way. He sees himself as trying to keep the door open for the spread of the gospel in our society. Jeremy, thank you for clearing some time in your schedule to speak with us.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, I wonder if you could start with a brief overview of the last few years in terms of legal issues within the U.S. I I know that uh, many of our listeners are outside of Pennsylvania, which is where you're located, and, and also many of our listeners are overseas. But I wonder if you could survey what's going on here in the United States and specifically the kinds of things that Christians might need to be aware of.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I probably wouldn't even need to go back the last two years. I could probably just talk about the last two months um, at the speed of things uh, that they're moving right now. One of the big movements uh, on the tail end of the marriage decision that occurred last June um, is to modify non-discrimination laws. Uh, Non-discrimination laws generally will cover employment, they'll cover things like housing, and they'll cover things like public accommodations. And so here in Pennsylvania and a number of states across the United States have been dealing with the employment issue in particular, uh, where the big argument is between should religious employers, and those are usually categorized as churches or religious schools or religious nonprofits and things of that nature, should they be allowed to hire employees on the basis of whether that employee believes like they do on the basis of things like marriage or human sexuality? Traditionally, it's always been uh, accepted that they can hire people on the basis of religion, but can they hire on the basis of religious beliefs about human sexuality now? Um, and the answer that we're hearing from a lot of states, and, and a lot of states haven't come to full conclusions yet, but there are many that have, saying that if if you disagree with the church's position on human sexuality, you still need to hire them. So yeah, those carve-outs are, are one big section, and then we obviously have the bathroom issues, and we can talk about those probably separate.
0: No, yeah, I think we should get to both of those. I'm I, you know, i I'm, I'm glad you brought up some of those employment issues. I, I, I have found that that's one of the questions I get asked the most uh, about uh, from people who know that I uh, teach at a Christian university. So my question to you, though, is this. Um, obviously, that has tremendous implications for people who are— um, who are in a sense in administrative roles in churches and religious organizations? What does all this mean? All these redefinitions. What do they mean for normal Christians living their lives?
1: Well, certainly for the for the Christians who are working at religious employers, um, it means a, a drastic shift um, in the in the purpose and mission for why they are organized. Um, outside of the outside of the context of religious organizations um, it's not quite as clear yet but there's cases around the country where we're starting to see um, what happens when you place things like sexual orientation and gender identity and expression onto the same plane as race for instance um, employees in secular fields where religion is technically a protected class um, but if you were to speak out, and say that you believe that marriage should be between a man and a woman at the cafeteria or you were to write a, a devotional book on your free time that you can be fired uh, as if you wrote something that was racist. Um, we've seen this starting to happen around the country where people people's religious beliefs are being the protection, the protected status that we're all kind of accustomed to and we all believe exists is being carved so anything that's dealing with human sexuality that doesn't comport with society's now uh, beliefs about human sexuality are being deemed the equivalent to racism. And so society will tell them, if, if you can't make a racist statement and then justify it based on religion, then you can no longer make a statement about the rightness or wrongness of human sexual conduct. For Christians, we understand that there's a vast difference between human sexuality and race. Especially when you think about a religious employer, uh, what they're doing when they're hiring their employees is not even making a determination based on somebody's orientation or who they're attracted to. If that was the standard uh, of whether somebody uh, was attracted or wanted to do something that the religion taught was sinful, then I would imagine that there'd be no employees at religious organizations unless it was Jesus Christ himself. Um, But what those religious employers are doing is they're saying, do you believe what we believe about human sexuality? So it, it is the belief element there. And do you act on it or not? So the action element, the orientation element or, or, there's belief, or the feelings that we have aren't really at issue. With race, we all know that there isn't an action element that you can engage in or not engage in to make yourself one race or another. And therefore, there's no belief about the morality of an action since there is no action to begin with. Uh, most people in the church get that intuitively, even though they may not be able to articulate it. And maybe that was not even a, a very clear way of articulating it. Um, but it's, it's, something, it's something that we intuitively understand. And, and just a couple weeks ago, we had a, a great attorney, um, Jonathan Alexander, coming from uh, Washington, D.C. He came out. He's a, he's a black American, and he, he gave uh, compelling testimony to the Pennsylvania Senate. Explaining to them the difference between his race, and sexual orientation and gender identity. So I encourage people to go uh, online, uh, the PA Senate Employment and Labor uh, Committee, and that that testimony is online there.
0: No, that's that's helpful, and I'm glad you did elaborate on that because as you were as you were beginning your answer, it, it occurred to me that there are arguments that are made that uh, don't really uh, aren't able to withstand close scrutiny like the parallel between race and sexual orientation and yet um, they can kind of catch us flat-footed and and that was really what I wanted to ask you next as you have advocated for space within the public square for Christians to live according to their convictions and for Christian institutions to operate according to their convictions um, I'm wondering, what you've observed in terms of our own under preparation or 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 shallow thinking on these things, in what ways have we been unprepared? in what ways do we need to think more carefully in order to, as it were, arm ourselves, at least intellectually, for uh, the arguments that are coming at us?
1: Well, I think in a way um, it's understandable because the things, that are, the, the, the things that are occurring in our society right now are largely things that we've assumed for so long that there hasn't been, uh, there hasn't been long periods of, of discussion or analysis, especially in the Christian world. When we take, for instance, marriage, uh, a concept that has been around for a very long time, we could talk about marriage in the religious context and say this is what marriage is. It's between a man and a woman, and this is the biblical basis uh, on which we place that. But as a church, we really never had to, because because the culture was aligned with us, defend why the church uh, ought to ought to believe that the state should be involved in marriage. And so when when society and when the, when people who advocated for changing marriage came on the scene and were making arguments that religious marriage can they can get married however they want to, but this is state. And so we, sh- we can define that however we want to. We were sort of left without having sat down and thought about why we as a church believe that the state ought to get involved in marriage. And it was something that wasn't by and large being taught from the pews. It was kind of like if you're in a trial and somebody gets up and they give the opening statement, and maybe that opening statement at a church was the biblical basis and foundation for what marriage actually is, And then the world got up, and then they gave their opening statement. And usually when you hear that first argument, you say, wow, that that side has a really good point. They're going to win this trial. And then when the other side got to give their opening statement, then you say, okay, well, we have a battle in our hands. But with marriage, we kind of saw that the church remained silent after giving their opening statement. The culture put on their evidence. Uh, The culture put on witnesses, and the culture gave a closing statement. But by and large, the church was left with saying, well, it's just so obvious to us. We, we can't. How do you not see it? And, and I think that those kind of um, so we were kind of caught uh, unprepared. And I think with these non-discrimination statutes, because we've been unprepared in the past, people are starting to analyze these things. And it's happening quicker because the, the pace at which these changes are happening is so quick. The other thing that I would caution uh, people in addition to trying to make sure that we're not caught unaware and we're, we're analyzing things that we may assume to be so obvious that we don't have to, um, is to be prepared of, of, the, of the accusation of hate. And, and what I mean by that is we've spent a lot of time as a church preparing people to speak truth with love and with kindness and with respect. And, and we need to do that and we need to continue to do that because that's an important, very important uh, principle. It's a very important <laughs> principle upon which the way that Jesus interacted with the people around him. But what we can't forget is that Jesus taught that if they hated the master, they're also going to hate the servant. And as his servants, we can't expect that if we are speaking the truth and love, that we're not going to get a response of you're hateful, you're bigoted, and those sorts of things. So we need to prepare people for that response, because that response is one thing that I think causes Christians to sort of retreat and, and refuse to engage in the dialogue. So when the race analogy comes up, a lot of times people are very, um, number one, they may be unprepared to talk about it, but number two, it is, it, it's a scary thing to be uh, compared to racists. And so we as a church need to prepare ourselves to be able to have that conversation, have it with the truth and love, um, but know that we're still going to be hated. We're still going to be called hateful, no matter how loving we speak the truth.
0: Yeah, that's such good advice. I think you you really nailed it on both of those things. Uh, On the one hand, the arguments surprised us, even though um, as as I'm learning, uh, these arguments have been in the works for some time, but they they caught us off guard as, as Christians and really surprised and shocked us. As you said, it feels like everything's moving so quickly. But but I I think you make a great point, which is you have to be prepared for the fact that when you a- engage in this, uh, one of the counterattacks is going to be accusations of of hatred. And that's that's helpful advice, not just to individual Christians, but also to pastors and others who are preparing uh, members of their churches to to deal with this. And that, that's kind of where I wanted to go next. Uh, many of our listeners are pastors or, or elders or deacons, officers in a local church. And moving back to the kind of institutional implications, what kinds of things do you foresee churches having to address in light of these legal challenges?
1: Well, I think one of the, one of the first things that is always good to look at it is your policies and your bylaws to make sure that what you believe about these issues is clear. Um, that's something that again, in the past you may not have had to have done quite as much. And another thing is your membership policies and who can take part in certain events or who can volunteer, uh, to be a spokesperson or to be kind of in a, in a leadership role in the church. Um, Going by your, your Matthew 17 and, and following through with church discipline, um, be consistent with the way that you treat people based on a variety of different sins, um, but be consistent in those type of things. Now, the problem with having good policies, uh, for instance, with things like your employment policies or things like whether you're renting out a, a gymnasium or you're permitting your chapel to be used for weddings— Uh, You can have a good policy and you can be very clear that you want the the building to be used for things that don't conflict with your religious beliefs. Um, Policies and having good documentation and having good contracts are great. Uh, They're kind of like a bulletproof vest, but we all know that bulletproof vests are impermeable to every type of weapon. And the type of laws that are being proposed are oftentimes weapons that these bulletproof vests can't really uh, defend against if that analogy makes sense. So we need to make sure that we're engaged, especially, I think, in the the United States, at the state and local level, because these type of laws are being passed at the local level as well. They're not usually being applied to churches if they're passed in the local level, not because they don't apply to churches based on how it's written, but just because a lot of times the the smaller communities uh, don't want to go after the church right away, but at the state level, they can be. Now, one of the big things that people will often one of the big, I think, misconceptions that churches, religious schools and, and the like have is that the constitution will protect you. Um, the easiest way to understand why it would not protect you is this. If you, again, go back to race analogy, um, and you look at the way that the laws are applied, the constitution, of religious liberty uh, doctrines do protect us to a certain extent, but most non-discrimination statutes don't permit you to hire and fire on the basis of protected classes. The only exception to that is usually religion. But as long as your religious your religious uh, belief doesn't conflict with any of the other protected classes. So what do I mean by that? If you are hiring as a church, your executive assistant, you couldn't say based on my religious beliefs, we're only going to hire white executive assistants or black executive assistants or male or female executive assistants. That would be discrimination on the basis of sex or race. Um, You could not say this is my religious belief, so I can do whatever I want to. They would say, you can do whatever you want to. You could hire only Lutherans, but you can't hire only male Lutherans. And most churches understand that most churches would make those kind of distinctions anyways with their, their executive assistants. But that, that same idea is being, when you do a find and replace and you add in sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, gender expression, that means that all of your employees who aren't ministers would be, would, you would have to hire them regardless of their belief or regardless of their practice regarding human sexuality. So that's on the employment landscape. Churches are also public accommodations in certain contexts, and we're actually seeing this in Iowa and in Massachusetts right now with the bathrooms, usually churches don't have locker rooms, but sometimes they do have uh, homeless shelters or, or, or shelter uh, or they'll, they'll open up their church for uh, people who need to get away from uh, an abusive relationship, usually women and children. Um, some of these laws are being interpreted to apply to churches because on a Sunday morning, you open your doors to everybody. I don't know of any church that would say, no, we only accept members only uh, for the most part. There's exceptions to that, but what happens is if you're a public accommodation and you're opening up to everybody, then there are no religious accommodations in public accommodations laws. Which means if you have a man who identifies themselves as a woman, um, they would be required, or you would be required to let them use the the restroom of how, whatever they believe that they are or whatever that they say that they are. And we would say, well, how does how does that happen when the Constitution should protect us? And again. Go back to the race example. Could a church say we're not going to allow, uh, we're going to have separate restrooms based on race? And the answer is no. The, the law, the, the non-discrimination laws for public accommodation would apply to the church's bathrooms because they're open to the public. And so that's what they're, they're, they're using that um, and, and applying that for sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. Now, again... I don't want to just leave it there. I'd like to, to go through and explain why. Why is it different? Why is it different than race? That's, that's the argument that often comes up with, with, uh, with these bathroom and locker room and shower type contexts. And you'll hear people often say, isn't this something that people did uh, 70 years ago, 60 years ago, uh, where they had different restrooms or different uh, water fountains based on the color of your skin? Absolutely. That did happen, and that was wrong. And why was it wrong? Well, that was wrong because drinking water or going to the bathroom, those things have, have there's no there's nothing inherent in those activities uh, that a person's skin color has anything to do with, right? Whether you're a black man or a white man, it doesn't make a difference in how you drink water, it doesn't make a difference how you use the restroom. With bathrooms, the only reason that we have separate bathrooms in the first place is because of the biological differences between us. Now, we don't have them based on what we wear. We don't have them based on who we like, who we're attracted to. We don't have them based on what we believe, right? The only reason we have them is based on biological sex. What the other side really is saying, if you take that argument, that racial analogy to its logical conclusion, what they're really saying would be, well, we can't have any separate restrooms at all if you were to use that analogy properly. Because We don't have separate water fountains based on the color of our skin or based on our sex. We all use the same. And in bathrooms now, it doesn't matter your race. We all use the same bathroom based on our sex. Race has nothing to do with it because race has nothing to do with how we use a bathroom. But if that argument was taken as truth, that would mean that you'd have to open up restrooms to everybody. What the other side is really doing, though, is not. They're saying we just want to create a new form of segregation one that's based on the subjective belief about gender rather than the objective reality of sex.
0: Yeah, no, that those are thorny issues. And, and this is helpful because I think to return to one of your earlier points, one of the problems has been that we just haven't had enough uh, clarity about what might be coming down the road to even think, you know, kind of do any second level thinking about, about what this is all going to mean and how we should respond to it in an appropriate and biblical way. And so then that leads me actually to my last question. You've introduced so many issues here, and what I'm wondering is what resources, blogs or websites or books would you recommend to those thinking through the implications of these significant changes. You mentioned your own website a little bit earlier and some testimony that you would recommend, but but in general, what are some some go-to sites that you could recommend to someone who's a non-specialist but who who wants to be engaged and who wants to kind of know uh, what to be prepared for and how to think it through carefully.
1: Yeah, I think you know our website pafamily.org has a lot of good information. Um, another organization that's similar to ours but more on a national scope and they actually have an international practice as well is the Alliance Defending Freedom and they're at uh www.adflegal.org. Another a new site that often has really really uh, good thinking on this type of issues are the daily signal. Uh, and that's a, that's a site that's, that's uh, associated with heritage foundation. I think those are three really good places that you can go to get good information on this. And if you follow those groups on Facebook, they usually link out to, to really good theologians, uh, philosophers, philosophers and, and lawyers who are, who are talking about these issues in ways that really help, help people wrap their minds around it and help, Especially, I think pastors be able to then communicate that to the rest of the people sitting in their pews, um, because they're they're six days a week out in the world hearing um, that their views are discriminatory and that they're a bigot and 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 that the Bible uh, has justified racism in the past. And so it's no different than that when com- when dealing with these issues, dealing with human sexuality, and so. It's thorny, and it's difficult to deal with that from the pulpit or, or the other avenues that churches have uh, to discuss with their, their flock, but they need to know. They need to know these things, and they need to know how to think about that, and not just what the biblical view is, but how to discuss the biblical view and its application to the world, and, and a world which often doesn't agree with our, our biblical worldview.
0: Well, I appreciate those recommendations. We'll try to post links to those on the website along with this interview. And, Jeremy, I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy, and I'm glad for all the work you're doing, but thanks for giving us some of your time today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Jonathan.
0: You've been listening to Theology on the Go, a podcast of placefortruth.org. Place for Truth wishes to be thoughtful and accessible and is based on the conviction that the gains of the Protestant Reformation retain their potency and ought to be maintained for the health of Christ's church. Just for listening, we'd like to equip you with free resources. Visit placefortruth.org to find a link to those resources. And listen next time to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.